The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This is the Ellis Martin Report. For the next half hour, you'll hear expert insight, commentary, and potential financial opportunity. We want you to know up front, eyes wide open, companies featured on this program have given us cash money to be portrayed here. Ellis Martin may have a financial position in issues mentioned on this program. On the web, find us at ellismartinreport.com. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with Ranting Andy Hoffman. Ranting Andy Hoffman spent 15 years on Wall Street before shifting his focus to precious metals in 2002. Over the past decade, he has become a global expert in gold and silver analysis, and in late 2011, joined Miles Franklin Precious Metals as its marketing director. Andy, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me again, Alice. After a significant pullback in recent months, the last few days have shown promise with a decent upswing. Have we finally passed the bottom with regard to silver and gold? Well, I never try to answer that question definitively. I just try to put out a mosaic of technical and fundamental factors that would suggest where we are likely to be. What we've had in the past 10 weeks is a complete annihilation of the sector based on Theoretically, if you remember, the end of quantitative easing, they were so keen on attacking gold and silver, they didn't even really come up with any evidence. They said that uh, Bernanke's comments suggested that, but they really didn't. They didn't say anything. The fact is, as I was reading an article yesterday just about this, is that they needed to knock this down because they're going to be announcing QE. And I don't just mean standard QE. I mean the end of Europe, saving uh, Europe from annihilation QE of massive epic proportions across multiple countries and continents, and it's going to be coming soon. I don't believe it's going to work, but I believe that it's coming soon, I think, from what we're seeing. And and as a result, we've seen massively oversold technical positions in gold and silver. We've seen uh, reports of massive physical buying, and it's really hard to believe that if we're not at the bottom, we're not pretty darn close. Have you noticed an upsurge in purchases at Miles Franklin during the last week? I would say we've seen it in the last two or three days. It's been very sporadic this year. We've had some of our biggest orders yet in our history, meaning there are some major players coming in, but it's been relatively quiet for the past month or two since the leap day violation. But I will say late this week, once we saw the turnaround, we've had really, really strong demand across the board. Do you recall what it was like in 2008 when this recession began? I noticed you referenced a Chris Martinson article that was written a few days ago. Were the same factors in place for precious metals back then? In 2008, the big issue was really in my piece that I wrote today. It was just published maybe an hour ago about this very issue. In 2008, obviously, the problem was the banks. So the government still had some kind of political and financial capital left to bail them out. And the problem is this time around, they're the ones who need the bailing out, let alone the banks who have been zombies for four years. So my view is that this time around, my analogy is you have the 1993 World Trade Center attack and then you have 9-11. Well, that's how I'm comparing 2008 to what I believe is going to come now, because this is about countries now. This is about a breakup of the euro. This is about a contagion that spreads to all of the over-leveraged nations in the world, and that would be 
in the Western Hemisphere, the Eastern Hemisphere, and eventually it's going to get to the United States. I don't know how it's going to happen or the timing, but I do believe something really tragic is going to happen with the European Union sometime this year. So the central banks will attempt to save the situation, but they won't be able to save themselves in the process. Right. Well, they're going to try. And I took a quote out from Chris Martinson because he said, I think we're approaching the end of the period where the central banks can influence, where they can say, oh, yeah, we're printing money and, and actually get the markets to go up. And I'm not even talking about their participation in the markets to manipulate them up. I'm talking about that there's an actual belief in 2008, even in late 2011 when they did the LTRO and the Fed swap facility, there was still kind of a belief that they could still influence markets and, and improve the situation. But my belief is that this time around, all they're going to people are going to see is hyperinflation because there's no one who really can believe that just printing more money is going to save Spain or Greece. In the case of Greece, they're pretty much going to just, you know, I think what they're going to do is renege on their debt and kick themselves out of the euro. And when that happens, you're going to see a spread and contagion because all the other nations are going to say, well, if they don't have to pay their debt, then we don't have to either. We had significant inflation in 1980 around the time that... Reagan arrived in office, and then interest rates grew, which ultimately provided more incentive for institutions to lend money, which they did. Aren't any of these same factors in place now? It's apples and oranges. I mean, well, obviously the inflation wasn't good back then. We had a you know, terrible economy throughout the late 70s and early 80s as a result of that inflation. And, you know, that inflation basically started when we got off the gold standard. We had the Vietnam War, the guns and butter. We spent the money. We went off the gold standard and the Arab oil embargo, and as a result, we had raging inflation. But the biggest difference between 1980 and today was back then, we had just, and I mean, when I say we, I mean the whole world had just gotten off of the gold standard. So they didn't really have debt. Remember, the gold standard is what keeps governments from expanding their debt. So from 1971 up until the present, governments have been able to, the equivalent of, build up their credit card. They had no credit card balances. Now they've maxed them all out. So... Back then, we didn't have that much debt, and it was possible to raise interest rates to stave off inflation. Now, however, we have such massive, massive debts that the Fed is, for instance, has ZERP until at least late 2014. They know that even a quarter point increase in interest rates will cause massive, massive increase in debt service, and even a 2 or 3% increase in interest rates will just completely destroy the nation. It'll, you know, the deficit will go up by a trillion dollars. So the point is, we can't raise interest rates now like we could then. In fact, we're printing money and monetizing 60% of all the new issuance, and we'll have to do more next year because the deficit will be higher, and the U.S. Treasury will be even more untrustworthy. And just wait till we have the debt debacle because the debt ceiling is going to be hit right at the time of the election. And I believe that there's going to be more problems there, just like last year. So there's really no solution now. They will try to print money. But like I said, we've gotten to the point of diminishing returns where when they print money, it doesn't do anything. We're seeing collapsing economies, collapsing banks, and exploding debt. I think they're going to try it, but I don't think it's going to help this time around. So the cartel has no more juice. No. All they have left now is, you know, I call it, Money printing, market manipulation, and propaganda. The problem is, like I'm saying, the money printing's not helping anymore, so you can say all you want. And uh, I agree, they have no more tools left in their, or arrows left in their quiver. Now, we know there are a series of events going on that will take down the economy even further. We're assuming that, and it's probably happening. And, of course, there could always be some sort of tragic circumstance that we don't want that could bring the house of cards down immediately. Is there any big event that could turn things around and make everything all rosy again? No. There's no. Nothing. I mean, this is, you know, you, when you pass the point of no return, 
I mean, you, if you jump off a cliff, you can't say, well, I hope something will get me back on top. And we have passed the point of no return in debt. And I'm not just talking about the states. I'm talking about Japan, Europe, even China, because China's in a very difficult situation. They may have no debt, but they also have a, a construction bubble that's crashing. And they have a communist economy that needs to feed 1.5 billion people. So they have the same kind of problems as we do. I mean, a different side of those problems, but everyone's past the point of no return now. And so the only solution is going to be the same solution that's happened to every fiat currency system in history, and that's going to be to collapse and reboot. And it's going to be very painful for almost everyone. A few people will protect themselves, but you know most people are going to get swept up in it, just like has happened in, throughout history. So that's pretty much a default of nearly every major economy in the world. Yeah, either through hyperinflation or through actual default. And I think you know a country like Greece, which really has no printing press, they're going to just default. They're just going to say, we're not paying. The people have, have spoken. They voted out everyone that's in office, and they voted in pretty much anyone else that they can get their hands of. And those people are going to probably say, we're defaulting. But then when you get to the bigger, these so-called leaders like the ECB and the Fed, they're going to say, look, our only choice is to print money. And it's going to be very transparent. Like I said, when you pass the point of no return, you can't come back. Well, I'm going to deem you a futurist for the purpose of my next question. Where do you see the country in the world five years out in 2017? Well, it's pretty far. I, I, I don't know how far things will progress. I'm not going to be a fatalist and say that it's all bad because I don't know. I just know what has to happen now. Where you know The math tells us that the currencies have to collapse. We have to have hyperinflation, unless the governments want to do the politically unpopular thing, which would be to just stop spending, and they can't do that. There's going to be a collapse. There's going to be a rebooting of the system. I can't tell you if it'll take two years or five years, but it's very likely that five years from now, we're still struggling across the world from uh, all the money printing of 40 years. I mean, it takes a long time to clean up a mess this big. I was wondering about a week ago, and I can be an emotional investor, and I shouldn't be. When I saw the pullback in precious metals, I thought, well, is there no safe haven now? What is your response to that? Over the long term, are we actually safe in physical gold and silver? Yeah, well, that's their goal, is to make you feel that way, and they do it with paper. They attack uh, the futures, the ETFs, anything that you don't actually need real physical uh, gold and silver behind, and certainly the mining shares where they've demoralized everyone. I've been talking, I can't scream loud enough for, uh, for months and, and months and months about mining shares because you are not safe in paper precious metal investments. They may go up and they may not, but you're just as likely to lose your shirt in paper PM investments as in regular stocks. The only way to ensure you're protected is with the real stuff because there's no debt attached to it. If you haven't borrowed you know, money to do it and won't have to pay it back, you're safe. It will protect you over time as it has for thousands of years, especially with what's going on right now with all the money printing around the world. I am 100% in the physical, and I am 100% comfortable. There's not one ounce of fear in me that I won't be protected. I'm involved in bullion as well, but I have to ask, how am I going to use it to pay my bills and to eat? No one that I know of takes payments in bullion right now. Bullion is the most liquid of assets in the entire world. You can trade it in at any coin shop. You can trade it in plenty of places. People say, well, you can't eat gold. Well, you can't eat treasury bonds. Can you bring a treasury bond or a stock certificate into the supermarket? No, of course you can liquidate it. There's plenty of places to do so. You don't need to do it at a bank. You know, when it comes down to it, would you rather have something that's appreciating in value or something that's depreciating in value? I mean, you cross that bridge when it comes. And right now, as far as I know, you could still go to the supermarket. If things get bad enough that that actually comes into question, 
whether people are going to be taking different currencies at the supermarket, you're going to be very happy that you have physical gold and silver because it's going to mean the currencies you know, are collapsing. Again, in full disclosure, you're the marketing director of MilesFranklin.com and a sponsor of this program. How do we buy the physical? It's very easy. You can just call our brokers and ask. We're there every day. Do your due diligence on the Internet or, or just call me or email me. I'll tell you anything you need to know about the sector. But if you just call us, 800-822-8080, we'll be able to answer any question you could possibly have. And we can either hold it ourselves or you can hold it for us. Right. We have storage programs in the United States and particularly uh, in Canada. We're very proud of that program in Montreal. Just give us a call. Talk to us about your blog before we sign off. Sure. I publish five days a week, as does David Sheckman, founder of Miles Franklin. And it's archived on our website, or you can just go there and put your email in. You'll get it for free every day. I don't think you're going to find between mine and David's blogs, you're going to find a more comprehensive group of educational material on the sector anywhere in the world. Andy, thanks much for joining us today on the program. You're very welcome. Thanks. I've been speaking with Andy Hoffman, Marketing Director for MilesFranklin.com. Listen to this segment again on the podcast page of our website, ellismartreport.com. Ian Chalmers is the managing director of a company with significant assets of zirconium, rare earths, and rare metals, as well as gold and copper, in New South Wales, Australia. The company is called Alkane Resources. It trades in the U.S. on the OTCQX under the symbol ANLKY. Ian, welcome back to the program. Hi, Alice. Nice to be talking to you again. I was just reading an article the other day, and it seems that the Australian economy is one of the few, if not the only, major economies outside of China that is showing a surplus. And that is based on the mining industry, from what I understand, with sales to China and Japan, etc. Absolutely. Really, Australia came through the whole GFC and the, you know, the latest of downturns and ructions very, very well. And certainly we're charging along. And as you, you rightly said, I mean, really, we're now very linked to China. And to another degree, maybe India. India is a country that often gets overlooked elsewhere in the world. But the Indian economy is following a path of the Chinese probably several years behind, probably take longer because there's a different sort of philosophical attitude within India. Those economies are really moving forward and that fortunately for Australia rubs off. Now, you know, that particularly in the mining industry, our mining industry is enormously strong. I mean, if you saw some of the investment numbers that are going into the industry, you know, we're talking hundreds of billions of dollars investment going into the mining industry over the next few years. So it's charging along. The slight negative is that it's sort of impacting a little bit on the rest of the economy and a, and a very strong Australian dollar is making it very difficult to, for Australian exports to compete. So yes, the country's in very, very good shape, driven by the mining industry, but there is a few little concerns sort of underlying it as well. Is the mining industry employing many people in Australia? Not really. Like all things, I mean, the mining industry has got very, very good in the last 10 years of, of sort of automation and minimising. I, I think the employment's probably something less than 100,000, so it's not a huge employment. But again, in Australian context, that's quite a lot. But nothing like, say, the, the manufacturing industries or the tourism industries or those sort of things. But it's a very high value, and, and that's part of the issue here currently is how does that high value going to a relatively few people get distributed to the rest of the country? And sitting where we do, here in Western Australia, which is the dominant mining state, we're always hearing and feeling that, uh, that us Westerners are keeping uh, the Easterners surviving, you know, economically going, and so there's always a little bit of friction between the East and the West about who's doing what to keep the country afloat. But again, overall, it's still a pretty positive. They're freeloaders in the East then, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I do notice that uh, that same uh, sentiment coming from the US and Canada too. You quite often, I'm quite often in, in places, and you hear that you hear the same sort of say. 
Margaret, it's amazing, isn't it, that you can have continents on the other side of the world and surprisingly the same sort of philosophy. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's quite fascinating. What's interesting about Australia and Canada, aside from them being Commonwealth countries, is that the Canadian and Australian dollars have been strong against the U.S. and other currencies around the world. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. And, and again, it's sort of almost counterproductive in some ways because obviously if you're a major exporting country like Australia, like Canada, you don't want a strong dollar because it makes the material so expensive. That's the only negative that we see. And we also see the Australian dollar seems to be one of those ones that's favoured by speculators. So market sentiment drives the Australian dollar up and down rather than sort of economic fundamentals. You know, for example, in the last three or four days, we've probably seen the Australian dollar depreciate maybe three or four percent. Again, just because of economic uncertainties, and uh, it, it is it, it's, it's from a from a producer's point of view or anybody that's exporting, it is it is makes life very very difficult trying to predict where it's going to go and how it affects your income. Does Australia have an abundance of natural resources compared to other parts of the world, like the U.S., or is it your proximity to China, Japan, and India that accounts for this boom, or is it a combination of everything? Yeah, it is. I mean, Australia geologically is a very diverse continent. I mean, it's probably not unlike Canada and the US to some degree, except we're probably, in terms of development, you know, several tens of years behind both countries in our mining developments. What we've seen in the last 10 years, particularly here, is big growth in the iron ore industry, obviously for the steel industry in China, big growth in the coal industry, again, for the same reasons and also for energy. But perhaps the most startling is the gas, natural gas. Um, Australia now must be getting close to being the the biggest LNG exporter in the world, and it's probably not widely known you know, elsewhere, but the country does and is building some huge LNG projects and just exporting vast amounts. And again, it's getting consumed in places like China and India and Japan, oh, and in Asia generally, just by, for the need for energy um, production. So it's a combination of geology. It's also a combination of geography. Obviously, it's pretty easy to export materials from Australia into Asia and into India because of the proximity. You know, we quite often see the comparison, say, with Brazil. Brazil's a major iron ore exporter, but the actual cost of shipping from Brazil, say, to China is significantly greater than it is from Australia. So that obviously impacts. So it is it's a combination of geography and geology. How do these combinations benefit your company, Alkane Resources? Look, I think they benefit us in that they give us great opportunities. And in this industry, you have to be, in my view, very persistent. You know, we picked an area, even though we're based on the West Coast, we picked an area over east to go and help out the poor, uh, poverty-stricken Easterners to focus our development there, to, to focus with the exploration work that we're doing and the development work there. And again, because it's a geologically significant area and we thought an area where there's a lot of potential. By persistence, I mean sometimes you have to try and get in early. Now, you know, with the Dubbo Zirconia project, this is a major zirconium niobium rare earth project. We've been working on that project now seriously for probably 13 years and when we started out back in the late 90s most people thought we were mad you know why are you looking at these exotic metals that nobody wants to buy and I guess it sort of influenced us to say well we believe that over the next 20 to 30 years the world will need these metals there will be growing demand the sources of supply are currently restricted or focused in particular geographical areas and therefore there was a great opportunity so two things there a having the access to the, the right geology to start with and then second Secondly, being able to see somewhere in the future where things like these particular metals are going to be in short supply. That's just brilliance on the part of the board of Alkane to be able to see that far into the future and to see this tremendous need even exporting to China. 
Did you see that as well back then? No, we didn't. I mean, I certainly, you know, certainly would have underestimated enormously what happened in China. I, I think all of us you know, really, until probably four or five years ago, regarded China as a, as a communist country, which it still is, of course, with a very insular outlook on the world and a very insular requirement. What we didn't anticipate was this. Again, you'd have to congratulate the Chinese authorities for saying, well, this country needs to come up to be a first world country. We need to put a lot of effort into the resources, a lot of effort into the standard of living for the people of this country. And that requires us to do this, this, this. And, and then that's when China really started to become aggressive in the resources area. And they've really driven the, the demand for iron ore, coal and every other metal, really. You might not like communism as a government philosophy, but you have to give them you know, recognition for what they've done and then the flow-on effects it's had to other places like Australia. I just wonder how that works under communist government. How do you manage 1.3 billion people and keep them productive? I think that the fundamental is you keep them happy. You get them happy, keep them happy. And, and this urbanisation program that's going on in China where they, they sort of building cities, you know, 5 million, 10 million cities on a, on a regular basis and they're encouraging people to come in off the land, you know, the, the small villages where there's really limited work and limited ability to improve, come into the cities. And then coming into the cities is like a, a self-fulfilling vision in the sense that those people then require jobs, they require, they'll go out and buy things and they become a consumer society as well so it's a slow process but you can certainly see it happening in China I mean you only have to look at you know, television programs on China and the, the value of living that's, that's happening now it's, it's a big big change huge change and it's interesting to watch. Don't the Chinese like to own most of what they involve themselves with on all ends? Don't they like to become vertically integrated by rote? Have you had any suitors trying to obtain the company? Absolutely <laughs> I'd have to say I get regular telephone calls, regular emails. Uh, if we consider there's one shortcoming that they don't understand Western sort of corporate strategies or corporate requirements and those sort of things, I mean, you can't just ring up and say, I'd like to buy your company. It's a slightly more complicated procedure when you've got 6,000 shareholders and you're listed on the ASX and the ATCQX. It's a bit more complicated than that. But certainly it's something that they are educating themselves in at these processes. But that's why they tend to also throw a lot of money into Africa. I mean, it's a great opportunity. You can go into Africa with large amounts of money and you can acquire substantial resources very cheaply. And you don't normally get then the government interference that you'd say you'd get in Canada or the US or Australia. I mean, we have quite a restrictive foreign investment requirements here that anything that's regarded as a significant asset uh, has to go to what's called the Foreign Investment Review Board. And if those guys decide that even selling 20% to a foreign company impacts on the country's strategic plans, you know, not militarily, but, but economically, that can be refused. So we've actually seen that happen on a few occasions. And it actually happened to Linus. I mean, you know, as an Australian company with a big rare earth development, um, at one stage about four years ago, they almost became a Chinese company. So, and, but the FIRB here refused that takeover. Tell us about your off-take agreements for your double zirconia project with foreign companies. At this stage, we've got three MOUs, Memorandums of Understanding. Now, you know, these aren't solid off-take agreements. They're the framework for off-take agreements. Three for zirconium, and again, we've been unable to identify two of the parties for commercial sensitivities, but certainly those parties are mixed between Asia and Europe, if that's the best geographic location I can. But currently, those three MOUs cover 100% of our zirconium output. With niobium, again, 
we've got 100% of our niobium committed into a joint venture with a European company. All those MOUs are progressing at various stages of development and conversion ultimately into genuine offtake agreements. The interesting one's the rare earths. Now we've said publicly many times in the last year or so, we could have sold the two concentrates coming out of the Dubbo project many, many times as concentrates. What we've tried to do is be a little bit more proactive, I guess, and say, well, we'd rather joint venture those rare earth concentrates into a party that can do their separations for us, then take the separated material and sell that into the world markets. And that ultimately gives us a much better return for those valuable rare earths, particularly the heavier earths. We've got a 25% heavier earth output, and those are very important currently in both an economic sense and a technical sense. It's a slow process, and you know people sometimes get a little bit frustrated that we don't come out and announce things regularly, but really it's a slow process to get what you need ultimately to make the project very successful, and that's the focus. But I'm hoping that sometime in the next few weeks will actually come out with the, you'll be able to announce the arrangement on the rare earths. Oh, something more to look forward to as we get into June. That's correct. Yeah, I'd like very much to have it done by the end of June. I mean, our original target was the end of March, but again, for technical reasons, it's pushed out a little bit. But I'm hoping we'll have it done and certainly by the end of June. Well, you're going to be generating some major revenue within just a few years, the kind of revenue that most juniors will never see. Yes, I mean, certainly if the project goes in its current conceptual form, our revenue will be about $500 Australian million a year, which will probably convert to cash flow at around about 250 or 300 million. So certainly a very substantial project requires substantial investment to achieve that, but a very substantial project. And I guess the nice thing is that right now you don't see a, an end of life to that. I mean, the resource is capable of supporting a, a mining operation for 80 years or 100 years. And we know we've got other resources in the area anyway if we need to expand it. But realistically, when you've got a resource that it's going to last 50 years and when you, you tend not to worry you say well that's going to keep going and these sort of cash flows will keep going for a long period as long as something doesn't happen in the markets and that's the only concern the zirconium and rare earths dwarf what would otherwise be a sizable gold project that you have at Tomlingley? Again, it's a modest gold project, but for us, we have always described it as the bread and butter project. If we can get that going sometime and or start the construction sometime in the next two or three months, then in 12 months' time, we start the cash flows, and it really provides the background money, if you like, means that we can stay out of the market, we can fund everything else we're going to do, other than obviously the development of Dubai, from those cash flows. And again, the concept of the overall target is to be able to start paying dividends sometime the next four or five years and that's a pretty unusual phenomenon for a lot of mining companies especially junior mining companies to go out with that strategy but that's our strategy we believe we can pay dividends and we'd like to see us become a long-term dividends paying company well ian once again we've had another informative discussion today i thank you again for joining me on the program uh, and you too Alice. nice to talk to you thank you i've been speaking with ian chalmers the president of alkane resources Trading on the OTCQX under the symbol ANLKY. That's ANLKY. Listen to the segment again on the homepage of our website, ellismartreport.com. Would you like to hear all of that again? Go to the podcast page of our website. That's ellismartinreport.com. ellismartinreport.com. Otherwise known as ellismartinreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. In this segment, I'm visiting with Dr. Don Robinson, president of East Main Resources, trading on the TSX under the symbol ER. East Main is an active explorer in eastern Canada with an ongoing partnership with major gold producer Gold Corp. Fifty percent of this year's drilling will be focused on increasing the size 
of high-grade measured and indicated gold resources in the 450 and 850 west zones of East Main's Eau Claire project, which may be amenable to extraction by open-pit methods. I'm a shareholder of the company, and East Main is a paid sponsor of the Ellis Martin Report. Don, welcome back to the program. Good afternoon, Ellis. Happy to see you again. Happy to hear you again. I'm happy to see you too, Don. I'm looking at an 8x10 glossy of you right now. I have it right here on my desk. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot of selling going on at the moment, and I'm not one of those people. Do you think we're nearing a bottom? Well, some of the evidence certainly points to it. If you look at every chart of all the seniors, intermediates, juniors, etc., across the board, they've all been taking a shellacking, as we say in Canada. But for the first time this morning, we saw, even though gold was off and red, seniors started off red and then bounced green pretty heartily. So, you know, perhaps this is the sign where we'll look back in the mirror and say, well, that was it and we missed it. But I think some positive should be taken out of that. Does the price of gold, whether it's bullion or share prices, have anything to do with exploration or production with regard to a company like East Main? Well, Barry Cook, one of the famous analysts, used to say, you know, the, the juniors should not be influenced as much by the price of gold because we're not producing gold. However, it is a retained enterprise value in the ground, so I guess there's clearly a relationship, but there's a little bit of a indirect relationship really at the end of the day. Now, if you were a junior that was not as successful, let's say, as East Main, and you had to do a financing right now, you'd be in a tough spot, right? And that's exactly the point, is that the juniors that have not topped up their treasuries are certainly nervous, to say the least. Those that have topped up are in a position of strength. We've been fortunate for the past half a dozen years. We've been able to keep the company very strong in advance. Last year, we doubled our treasury for less than a 5% dilution. The placement price that we raise money at is more than double of what we're trading at right now. That's clearly an advantage for ourselves at the current point. Drilling is underway now at Clearwater. You're looking to expand your resource. You have a joint venture on one of your properties with Gold Corp. They're the largest investor in your company. You're developing your assets as a possible takeover candidate down the road. Well, as I think we spoke before, is that we've we've done an analysis of gold projects globally, and we are dealing with a project that is one of 13 in North America in terms of size and grade, and we're making it bigger. So Clearwater is a, in a unique circumstance as far as the project is concerned, And we have a very high-grade open pit resource, and there's ample evidence that we can make it bigger. And fortunately, we have a treasury in which we can do it. And the other thing that we have at our disposal is that we have a Quebec advantage. And that is, even with depressed share prices, we are able to get a premium on any placements that we do because we're working in Quebec. And that just means you can stretch the dollars a lot farther. This year, we are doing 50,000 meters of drilling for a budget of $10 There's companies out there that are doing comparable drill programs at four times the price. And that's where we have the Quebec advantage. And you're in an area of Quebec that's comparable to what the Timmins Gold Camp was years ago. The reason we're there in the first place is geology. And the geology that we're dealing with is a mirror image of what we've seen time and time again in these famous camps. The only difference was when we started, you had to fly for a few hundred miles in order to get to the project area. 
Now you can drive to it. Infrastructure is what will make the difference on any mining project. And in our case, we have a permanent road that comes right to the doorstep of the project, and we're within several miles of the cheapest power in the world. When we're ready, when that project gets to the point where it's ready to develop, the infrastructure's already in place. Another astounding fact about East Main is that some of the gold grades you've identified have been astronomical. Essentially, with regard to grades per ton out of the ground and into a truck, your cost of production per ounce of gold will be dramatically lower than many other juniors in the space. Well, last week we were invited to a special conference put on by Macquarie called Making the Grade. And 17 companies have a unique circumstance in that they have high-grade projects and high-grade assets. Clearwater is an exceptional one in that the open pit grade is three to five times higher than most of these undeveloped open pit projects out there, which has the following repercussions. One is that the capex or cost to develop the project is far, far less than these low-grade earth-moving exercises. Number two is that your profits out of this is much, much better. So that for a project, in our case, if it's a mill of two or 3,000 tons per day, it's equivalent to a 20 or 30,000 ton a day mill of some of these other projects. So it's clearly an advantage to have grade. There are so many companies that don't necessarily have grade, and they don't have money in the bank. Even though your share price has fallen back during this pullback, it's still performing much better than many of these other companies without that grade. Well, across the board, we're not happy with the share price, but we have outperformed our peers, and we've outperformed the companies that are trying to develop projects. I think we will see that specific companies get in a position where you can take advantage of this. And we have money in the bank. We have a very healthy program going forward. We're currently drilling as we speak, and that's the fun part of our business. And that way you can grow your project and then get into a new league, a new tier. And that's really what the catalyst is going to be in terms of the main driver of the share price success. Then we've got companies in Quebec such as Cisco with a large amount of low-grade tonnage and a share price of around 740 or so. They are the most gold price sensitive in terms of these large open pit earth moving exercises are very attractive. We just saw IM Gold acquired Trelawney. It's a very early stage large inferred resource and their objective is to make an impact uh, in terms of total production. And that's why senior companies are looking at low-grade projects, is that they're big. They can make an impact on the bottom line for the big companies. But they are also very sensitive to the price of gold, more so than the uh, higher-grade projects. And the other thing that they're very sensitive to is other costs. And we can see that the cost of producing an ounce of gold is creeping up. In fact, it's more than creeping up. It's really escalating significantly. And I think part of the reason that the cost of mining an ounce of gold is going up is that active mines are mining lower grade material because they can. And that for it's essentially replacing resources with lower grade material that formerly was waste and now they can actually make money on it. In a cooperative market, what would really drive your share price north? Well, I think no matter what the end game price point is, is that as long as you can keep ahead of the curve, keep your 
project advancing and keep your treasury topped up at a premium, those things are things that are in your control, and the rest of it will take care of itself. So this is how you managed to survive all these years. In fact, this is what Macquarie brought up in terms of when they introduced the different companies at this conference making the grade. They made a specific point of our company in terms of longevity, sort of you know, setting the bar very high and being able to last for quite some period of time and have stamina, given the prevailing headwinds that we've seen time and time again. The reason we've been able to do that is we've taken advantage of circumstances as they present themselves, such as being able to acquire management of your project when gold price is a tenth of what it is now. That's a little fortuitous, and it's a lot fortuitous on our behalf, but each step of the way, we've been able to take advantage of the circumstances. We were able to buy the royalty from the flagship last year outright, and so it's sort of taking advantage of what the current market conditions are enabling you. This is a time where there are acquisition opportunities in the marketplace, with other juniors faltering. Are you looking at any possible acquisitions for East Main? Well, actually, turn the table. The reverse is happening. Companies are screening projects that are out there, and just like we did, a number of projects filter to the top, either in terms of grade or in terms of growth, in terms of size, in terms of location. That's where our project is looking particularly attractive relative to the pack out there. In the meantime, what we're going to do is try to make it more attractive by drilling 50,000 meters. Your vision, Don, is to continuously bring value to the company. By drilling. Well, Don, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks again for joining me today on the program. Thank you very much, Alice. I've been speaking with Dr. Don Robinson, president of East Main Resources, a gold exploration company trading on the TSX under the symbol ER. Listen to this segment again on the podcast page of our website, ellismartinreport.com. For more information, visit our website, ellismartinreport.com. That's ellismartinreport.com. Join me now for a conversation with Eric Fear, the Chief Operating Officer of Silvercrest Mines. Silvercrest Mines trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol SVL, now the OTCQX, as STVZF. Mr. Fear has over 25 years of international experience in a senior capacity, including exploration, acquisition, development, and production of numerous mining projects in Chile, Brazil, Honduras, Mexico, and Peru. He previously served as chief geologist with Pegasus Gold. He was a senior engineer and manager with Newmont Mining and project manager with Eldorado Gold Corp. Silvercrest Mines is a Mexican precious metals producer with headquarters based in Vancouver, B.C. Silvercrest flagship property is the 100% owned Santa Elena Mine, which is located 150 kilometers northeast of Hermosillo in the state of Sonora, Mexico. The mine is a high-grade epithermal gold and silver producer. A three-year expansion plan is underway to double metals production at the Santa Elena mine, and exploration programs are rapidly advancing the definition of a large polymetallic deposit at the La Jolla property in Durango State, Mexico. Eric, welcome to the program. Great. Thanks for having us back on the air, Ellis. It's always an opportunity to get the story out. Well, you've got quite a story, and you've had quite a story for a significant amount of time. I'm just looking over your latest news release, and for quarter one of 2012, silver production is up 108% and gold ounces are up 198%. That's outstanding. Yeah, that's correct, Ellis. Part of it is 
that were comparing the quarter of 2011 with the current quarter. In the quarter of 2011, we were in the ramp-up phase, so we weren't at full production. So that's part of the bump-up. The other part of the bump-up in having such a significant change in percent is that we're getting better recoveries, we're getting better throughput through our crusher at the mine site, and all of that wraps up into more ounces and more cash flow for the company. So you're saying a lot of it is about the tools? It's about the tools and, and the people. A lot of it rolls back to a lot of the planning, strategic planning. You know, you got to have smart people on the ground and boots on the ground to get this work done. I give a big hand to our, our production team that's in Mexico. Great people, great people to work with. The local people that we're using in Mexico are top-notch people. We've taken people that have been working out on, on the ranching side a year ago and trained them up, and they're doing an excellent job. It all means savings to us and uh, more cash flow and opportunities for our shareholders and potential shareholders. One of the things mining companies come across, especially if they're going into production or even the development stage or exploration stage, is finding the right personnel in the area. And you're saying that you're just training locals and putting them to work. I implemented a program before we started construction of 70% local hire. Local being within about 35 kilometers of the mine site. And we're at that now. So we actually got guys that are, are local guys that are at the foreman level, superintendent level, that are running the crushers, that are running the plant, that are working in the pit, and they really appreciate the job. It's a great opportunity for the community. We've got great community support. One other thing that Santa Elena, which is our flagship for Silvercrest, uh, it's the flagship mine, is that it's a very attractive area. So you're close to Hermosillo, which has great infrastructure, an international airport, over a million people, and it's a very attractive place to work because the alternative is to work up in the Sahara Madre, you're on rotation, you don't get to see your families, so we get uh, quite a few people that are interested in coming to Santa Elena and work for us because of that. In addition to the production that you have going on and expanding that production capability, what about further exploration and stepping out the resource itself at Santa Elena? What's happening in that direction? We got a twofold plan for this year. One is to expand the resources at Santa Elena, and I'm shooting for a 50% to 100% increase in our underground resources. We've started up a drilling program, so look forward to those news releases coming up over the next several months. Beyond Santa Elena and expanding that resource, with success of expanding that resource, it adds mine life, adds more job security, adds more cash flow to the company and, and to its shareholders. Beyond Santa Elena, we uh, have a major discovery in the state of Durango. Keep in mind that Santa Elena is in the state of Sonora, so there's quite a bit of a distance between the, the two sites. So that major discovery is called La Jolla. We just did our first NI-43-101 resource in January, over 100 million ounces silver equivalent, about 60% of that silver, 30% copper, and 10% on the gold side. So there's great opportunities. We continue to drill there. We've got an 80-hole program that's underway, and we're shooting for a double on that resource toward the end of this year, too. We'll see if we're successful or not. The opportunity's there. It's a big system. It's a major discovery. Great opportunity for the company to grow in that direction. I would see Silvercrest in two to three years of being a mid-tier silver-gold producer and bringing, with success, bringing La Jolla online, uh, you know, it's 
it's five years out. You've got to get through all of your studies. But there is a, a conceptual business plan in place right now to look at the growth of the company. What kind of mine life are we looking at? Before the expansion plan, it was six years. The expansion plan at Santa Elena is adding another five years. So you're 10 to 11 years with success and getting 50% to 100% more resources underground. You're probably adding another two to three years on that life. So I think that Santa Elena, at the end of the day, with metal prices being where they're at, is a major project over the next 10 to 15 years. Well, you're generating revenue through production. Silver is being used as a speculative investment and as an industrial metal. We don't see the need for silver abating at all for the foreseeable future, whether it's the bullion itself or producing public company like yours. I agree with you. I mean, silver, 50% of it's used on the commodities side and 50% is industrial. So there is a balance there depending on global uh, economics and what's going on. But uh, we're very bullish on silver. Any plans beyond what we've discussed for the next two years? We're always looking at other projects. Uh, We're in a unique position right now, Ellis, that we do have a strong cash flow, although some of it's being put towards our expansion plan. We look at two to three acquisitions a month right now. I have an acquisitions team in Mexico. We love Mexico. We don't have any problems with the security there. There's great opportunities. I've previously worked in Nevada. Mexico is like Nevada 30 to 40 years ago. I mean, you can walk over, and we've just shown it. La Jolla a year ago had nothing, and one year later, it's a major discovery. So if I can go out in the field and walk over something and make a major discovery within the last year, you know that there's got to be tremendous opportunity, and we want to capture that opportunity. We don't want to overdo it because we do have a limited amount of people and a limited amount of funds, but... You definitely don't want to pass up an opportunity, and we continue to look for those. So if you were to pick up another find or two, like Santa Elena or La Jolla over the next two years, you would not be displeased? Oh, no. No, it's it's all great growth for the company. And we're pretty lean and mean. I mean, our corporate office has eight people in it. We don't book out uh, penthouse suites and spend millions of dollars on our overhead uh, just to keep the upper management happy. So... Lean and mean, we got over 240 employees or contractors right now in Mexico, and that's a pretty tight team for the amount of work and accomplishment that we're doing right now. So to find uh, another one or two or bring into our stable another one or two uh, projects just means great growth for the company, uh, moving once again into a mid-tier silver-gold producer, and, and we have the management team and the qualifications to do that. Speaking of your management team, the man with the great vision, one of the founders of the company, CEO Scott Drever, has been a quiet and strong presence. Oh, definitely. And and he will continue to be. I mean, Scott and I, we bat around business ideas every day. He's a great, stable force in moving this company forward. There was actually three of us founders, myself, Scott, and Barney Magnuson of Silvercrest. Beyond that uh, senior management level, there's uh, some great potential just below us. Brent McFarlane, Jed Thomas, uh, Salvador Aguayo. These are all VP positions that are critical to the growth of this company, and they got a lot of great experience and good people. Well, Eric, it's been a pleasure catching up with you. Thanks for joining me on the program, and thanks for the update. I look forward to speaking with you again. Okay, thank you uh, once again for the opportunity, Alice. I've been chatting with Eric Fear, Chief Operating Officer for Silvercrest Mines. Silvercrest trades on the TSX Venture Exchange. 
under the symbol SVL and on the OTCQX as STVZF. Listen to the segment again on the podcast page of our website, ellismartinreport.com. Join me now for an impromptu spur-of-the-moment interview with the silver guru, David Morgan. His website is silver-investor.com or themorganreport.com. David, welcome back to the program. Has the bottom come and gone in this market? Boy, it sure looks like it to me, Ellis, at least on the equity side. We've seen very low prices in the mining stocks across the board. Basis, the GDX and the other indexes, but primarily that one. Huge volume a few days ago. And usually those kind of volume increases are evidence of short covering. There's been a lot of professional money out there on the short side in these mining equities particularly, as well as the metals. When they see the opportunity, they will cover their positions, and that has taken place. I'm sure there's probably some more short covering to do, but I think the bottom is in for the mining equities. As far as the metals are concerned, it's quite possible that the bottom is in as well. I've been saying to our members and also in the public domain that I thought that we'd see the bottom in June, and I'm not going to change that yet, but I think we're close enough to a bottom for all practical purposes. My call was to, we'd see under 28 probably, and also consistently, especially for the membership where I actually go through the charts and circle and use arrows and all that kind of stuff, said, look, silver has gone into the $26 level two times, both times extremely briefly, what I refer to as a spike low. It comes right back up. There's only a few trades that are in that very area, and then it pops up and continues on up and starts building a base at a higher price. That's happened twice. We saw it again a couple days ago. Silver actually hit about the 2675 level. Basis Kitco is the market maker, so the price is very slightly from what the COMEX post was like 2668, and it came right back up. So I am pretty sure that we're either at the bottom or very close to it, probably within a month or so. Are you getting ready to put some money back into the market? And if so, are you making your subscribers aware of your intention and perhaps advising them that this would be a good time to consider doing the same thing? Well, I'll probably do an an update for the members only. Also, I had an order in and I bought some constitutional silver around the $27 mark. We had a rough almost six months in 2012 up until now. Are you bullish about the rest of the year? I am. You know, normally the metals bottom in the summer months, normally August. Uh, I think, again, it could be, you know, May or June. I'm kind of still biased toward June based on the work that I do. But regardless, this is close enough to the final bottom as far as I'm concerned. And the fundamentals for the metals have never been better. I mean, there's so many things going on in the global financial system and a global political environment that it just begs people to take a hard look at the metals problem with investing in general, and particularly in the metals, in my opinion, is that it's such an emotional thing. People want to be right. They want to be certain. They don't want to take the risk. And it's a herd mentality. People are much more comfortable buying when prices are going up, up, and up than they are to stomach it and say, Jesus, this is close enough to a low. I think I'll start buying in here. I wouldn't recommend anyone to put everything they've got into the metal or want to you know, put into the metals. In other words, a 20% of your portfolio is sitting on the sidelines and waiting for the time to buy. I wouldn't put it all in here, although I would certainly start here, and I'd wait a month or so and buy the rest, or maybe a month after that, so divide it into halves or thirds or fourths, and buy in over the next few months. And I think if you do that, an investor or anyone looking for two to three years out is going to be extremely happy with either the shares or the bullion or both, because, again, the fundamental facts are so extremely bullish for the precious metals that uh, I can't see them do anything but longer term go higher. 
some of the stocks that have fallen back in my portfolio in the last few months have dropped back as much as 50%, and today they've seen gains as high in one day from 15 to 30%. Should we be considering buying into stocks we already own that have been depressed as well as looking for new opportunities? Well, I've been seeing for months that their stocks are undervalued and it could become more undervalued and to buy in and plan to buy in, you know, through the summer. So I want to be consistent with everybody that's, you know, a paid member. Having said that, one of the ones that's more speculative in the portfolio is actually here in town. I've known them for a long time. Been in the stock once, made about 800% on it, got back in it. It's underwater from where we recommended it again, but nonetheless, that stock was up like 25% yesterday. I uh, really think, uh, again, that this is the time to not be fearful. It's the time to be pretty aggressive and get into these. What do you buy? That's an individual choice again. I mean, the Morgan Report focuses on money, metals, and mining. We certainly advocate everyone starting their metals portfolio, physical metal first. But once that's done, then you can diversify into the mining companies, and we stress really depending on the person, but primarily getting the top-tier cash-rich unhedged mining companies as the top tier, and then the uh, mid-tier growth companies, and then just bet a little to win a lot in the speculative side of the portfolio. So basically I have three outlines, a top-tier portfolio, a mid-tier portfolio, and a speculative portfolio. For our new listeners, David, how does one follow you? Now, there's lots of ways these days, as you know, with all the social media. I don't do them all, but I have a Twitter account. The Twitter account is SilverGuru22. I'm not prone to tell you I'm having a latte at Starbucks. Why would I waste your time telling you that? I do link articles that I read daily, or one of my top staff members does. And these are articles that I've read and vetted that I think are important to stay attuned to the precious metals in the overall global economy. So Twitter is SilverGuru22. I also have a YouTube channel, a lot of time, effort, and money as far as the camera action that goes into it. These, some are actually professionally done, most aren't, most are just YouTube quality, but they're all pertinent to keeping everyone abreast, and that channel on YouTube is Silver Guru. And then lastly, the website itself is themorganreport.com, all one word, themorganreport.com. You go there and you can get on our free e-letter, which is weekly on the weekend. Or if you are serious about these markets, you can look at three different levels of paid services. That's in the members-only side of the website. And there are three videos that actually outline exactly what you're going to get. So you've got a pretty good idea of what you're going to get if you become a paid member. You know what? Nowhere in this interview do I sense any negativity. Why do you think that is? Well, the market's been up for two days, so that's one thing. And, you know, when I bought at the bottom, again, if this is the bottom, I feel pretty good. If it's not, I still feel good. I do believe strongly, again, that over the longer term, uh, you're going to look back at buying silver under 30 or gold under 1600 And I've been consistently saying that for several months now to buy in there. And a lot of people are very smart in this industry, and few of them have been kind of advocating that, you know, these metals are ready for launch, they're only going to go up and all this. You know, I've stayed my ground as usual and said, you know, I don't see it that way. I think we have more consolidation, a sideways to downtrending market. And that alone, in my book, is worth something. And I'm not trying to sound like I'm better than or no more than or anything else, but I do want to make clear that I don't let much influence me. In other words, my work is my work, and I stick by it, you know, win, lose, or draw. Because, you know, people that perhaps were listening to some free information from someone else might have got in at, let's say, much higher prices and not had any cash left to take care of the opportunity that exists today. Well, David, as usual, it's been a fascinating few minutes with you. I thank you for joining me today on the program. Thank you.
I've been speaking with the silver guru, David Morgan. His website is themorganreport.com. Listen to this segment again on the podcast page of our website, ellismartinreport.com. You've just shared part of your life with the Ellis Martin Report. Remember, this is actually one of those paid programs where companies and individuals hand over cash to people like us to let you hear all about themselves. Remember, kids, invest at your own risk. Find us on the web at ellismartinreport.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.